episode 208. It takes physician leadership and vision to operationalize value-based care. Today, I speak with Eric Weaver, SVP Strategy and Transformation over at InnoVista. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. A health leader's media report from 2018 talked about private equity fleeing hospitals and looking to move those dollars, in some cases, into ambulatory investments. What can ambulatory practices do with those dollars, you might ask? Well, it takes $2 million bucks for a medium-sized physician-led ACO to buy the tech and infrastructure necessary to start up. Today, I speak with Eric Weaver, SVP Strategy and Transformation over at InnoVista. We talk about operationalizing the move from FFS to VBC, and mostly operationalizing the move adds up to excellent physician leadership, a strong vision, a strong story, and an incrementalist mindset. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Eric. Hello, Stacey. It is a pleasure to be here. Let's talk about the health leaders media report from earlier in November. Here's the headline, cut from the headlines. <laughs> Private equity fleeing hospitals. And the subhead is investors that invested in hospitals a decade ago are now looking for an exit. Why is this the case? I'm not entirely convinced it is. Okay, so I think it's definitely a trend that's bubbling up to the surface. And clearly, there's a lot of capital investment going on in healthcare. I mean, on the private equity side, which I'm more familiar with, it's about $50 billion in deals. But we can't really fool ourselves into thinking that, okay, this massive shift towards ambulatory investments, and it's going to siphon off any funds that you know, are going to create additional hospital mergers and expansion and building these new inpatient facilities. Because it's still a fact that the investment activity going on right now is really still focused on driving that scale in a fee-for-service world and instead of pursuing these cost reductions. On the buy side, it really seems like the investors are still playing the game of gaining leverage and trying to get better rates with payers. I was just reading in the New York Times just a few days ago, and they had this analysis that showed that hospital M&A activity is actually driving up costs. But I have hope, Stacey, and here's why. Okay, I think the tide's changing. Consumers are now more engaged. I think investors now see that value-based care is here to stay. I think hospitals are going to have to rethink their business model. You know, are they really going to focus on just the tertiary and quaternary care of their business? Are they going to somehow create even more innovation in terms of enhancing consumer experience, providing virtualized care, and somehow aligning better with ambulatory care. We'll see how that goes, but undoubtedly, investments are going to be deployed more and more in the ambulatory care setting over time. And I think that's really going to have an impact on value-based care. I mean, the move to VBC really does require you to innovate care delivery in a way that improves outcomes and lower costs by keeping patients out of the hospital. Primary care physicians are really in the driver's seat for that. 
consolidating definitely creates leverage. There's an economist out of Yale named Zach Cooper who showed pretty definitively that areas which have a concentration of very large hospitals that basically have a monopoly, the costs are, I think it was threefold higher than in areas where that is not the case. So obviously consolidation has some pretty profound business impact that, at least in the short term, very much advantages the hospital system that is consolidating. That's why it's happened. But I do believe, and maybe you can add some color here, that there is data research that suggests that physician-led ACOs, for example, perform better than hospital system-led ACOs. That is exactly what the data is showing. If you look at just the last few years of the Medicare Shared Savings Program, right now, physician-led ACOs are performing tremendously, leaps and bounds better than hospital-led ACOs. So they they have a clear advantage. For example, if you look at just the 2017 MSSP results that came out a few months ago, the physician-led ACOs had an average net savings of $69 per beneficiary, and the hospital-led ones had a net loss of $26 per beneficiary. Additionally, the physician-led ACOs had higher quality scores. So it really illustrates that physicians are in the best position to transition from FFS to VBC. So let's think about that a little bit. So if you look at it, you know, initial first blush reaction, you're going to think, well, physician-led ACOs, they're at this disadvantage in comparison to the hospital-led ones because they lack the capital and the administrative firepower to really create this population health infrastructure. But I disagree. I really think the physician-led ACOs are at a clear advantage because they're more agile and they're unconflicted. The hospital ACOs, they have to man destruction on all their fee-for-service lines of business. If they reduce admissions, emergency department visits, procedures, a majority of the savings elicited really comes from keeping patients out of their doors and making the hospital bear the loss. And this has the hospital-led ACOs focusing on getting revenue through seeing more patients and preventing leakage from the system. Hospital leaders are in a uniquely difficult position where they have to take the hit today for doing the right thing instead of taking a much larger hit down the road by not preparing for the inevitable shift towards value-based reimbursement. And quite frankly, physician-led ACOs, they don't have that dichotomy. I think they really have a clearer pathway to the financial benefits of reducing hospital costs you know, outside of the physician practice. And I really anticipate that we're going to see physicians play a key role in this massive shift towards value-based care on a national scale. Let me ask you an unfair question. Given what you just said, what is going to be the prevailing force, do you think? These incredibly powerful, highly consolidated, hospital-led organizations versus these rising stars that actually perform better in a future economy, you know, or a future economic model? Is this going to be a long transition and then everybody's going to be a physician-led ACO? Or do you think that the power that these hospital-led ACOs currently have is going to trump any value-based, quality-based benefit? I think there's a groundswell of physicians that feel empowered and are coming out of this long-lasting era of being downtrodden because they feel like they have to succumb to the forces of 
the fee-for-service world and having hospitals really dictating the business happenings of the entire industry. So, and, and, they, and they feel like, okay, well, let's take the mind of an average primary care physician. They're overwhelmed. There was a study I read a few, a few years ago. A physician did everything he or she had to do to take care of their patients. It'd be like 21.7 hours a day. So they feel devalued and marginalized. And to your question, I really feel like the physicians now, once that light bulb goes on and they see that they can be successful in value-based care and somehow overcome the headwinds that they feel in a fee-for-service business model where the margins are deteriorating, where they get a 0.5% increase from Medicare on their fee schedule and the cost of running their practice goes up 2 3 4 5% each year. I mean, I really think that we're going to see investment activity really create a more revitalized landscape to which physicians are going to be in the driver's seat. And I think convincing doctors that they can potentially earn more in a value-based world, at least on the primary care side, and getting away from fee-for-service, it's really hard to get that paradigm shift, but they can get there. And it's counterintuitive because you think that, okay, doing all this extra work to serve patients and to be more focused on what's going on in their world outside of the brick and mortar of your clinic and understanding what's going on in the patient's home, that's going to be a lot of additional costs. But I think that the amount of savings that can be generated from that really creates the opportunity for the primary care physician because they're in the driver's seat to control you know, anywhere between 85 to 90 percent of that downstream spend. So I, I do think you know, we're going to see it play out over time, but physicians, primarily ones that are in primary care family medicine, are going to feel more empowered. And I think now we're also seeing that specialists are going to join in this new journey. You know, just uh, last week, Alex Azar came out and said, we're going to have mandatory bundle payments for radiation oncology. And it sent a shockwave in the industry, Stacy. I mean, everyone's like, wow, how are, what? <laughs> I thought we were getting away from bundles and, and and all this. We're not in the Tom Price era anymore. The Alex Azar means business. And I think providers are going to have to understand that this is the new way of delivering care in our nation. So let's go through, you know, maybe the stages of change. So say I am a physician practice or, or maybe I've partnered up with some collaborators and we want to change our fee-for-service business into a value-based powerhouse. If we're going to start, and I think you had mentioned earlier that the first phase is kind of a pay-for-performance starting point, you know, foothold. Do you want to talk about what does that sort of look like as a first foray down the journey? Journey is definitely the right word. And it all starts by understanding that the industry is going to move in this direction, whether you like it or not. If you fight it, you're not going to prosper. You're going to die and you're going to be consumed by the forces that be, which is now the new revolution towards value-based care. Okay, that sounds like a big, grandiose statement. But really, I think conceptually, you have to get past that. And then where do you start? So let's say you want to pivot towards pay for performance and, and getting into upside only shared savings arrangements. Well, that time hopefully hasn't come and gone. I mean, there's still opportunities for that. Certainly in the Medicare shared savings program, there's been a perpetuation of these upside only track one MSSP models, but we're getting away from that. And I really think that physicians are going to have to 
you know, see the writing on the wall and understand that they're going to have to build this massive infrastructure. But as you look across the continuum, ultimately what you want to march towards, at least operationally, is having delegated capabilities. So how can you in and of itself actually perform the same functions as a health plan, you know, where you're delegated for utilization management and claims processing and customer service and referrals and authorizations? You know, this is a, a completely new ballgame. And, and and I think providers really have to start moving in that direction. And, it, and I think it really starts with Medicare Advantage. I mean, just a few weeks ago on your podcast, Stacey, you had John Gorman on and he was saying like, wow, you know, we have Medicare Advantage. It's about 35 percent of the Medicare program, and, you know, 22 million people. And it's going to be like up to 50 percent by, you know, 2025, which is right down the road. You have 11,000 people a day enrolling in Medicare, and more and more of them are going into Medicare Advantage plans. And I really think that's going to be the place where providers really have hope of seeing an increase in their payment rates that keep up with the pace of inflation. But you have to be able to take this journey, though, towards becoming a risk-bearing entity and taking on delegated functions with the patient coming first. And I think that's, that's first and foremost. And those physician leaders that realize that and are making those decisions, I think ultimately are going to be successful. I mean, I was just in a business meeting yesterday for, this was a, a legacy model IPA. It's been around for 30 years. And they realized, wow, we've got to pivot out of the world of fee-for-service. And what are we going to do here? And everything in this meeting was really focused on the patient. How are we going to build these additional programs to really engage patients uh, more effectively and address behavioral health and really make sure that they have a, a seamless transition out of the inpatient setting and focus on post-acute costs. There was a saying, you want lower costs, better outcomes, higher quality. You can only have two out of three. And I really think with value-based care, if you do it the right way with patient-centeredness, you can have all three. Because higher quality does equate to lower costs and improved patient experience. And that's a really impactful shift in your thinking that if you actually experience that, you'll never look at, you know, healthcare delivery the same. So this IPA that you were speaking with the other day, the one that you gave as an anecdote, what was it that made their ears perk up and, and realize that the time has come to start talking about this? I mean, obviously, we're at this point in the continuum here. So as you said, the time for some of these things is already passed, like the window's open and it's closed. What made them suddenly, kind of after all this time, reach this conclusion? I really think it comes down to the caliber of the physician leader that we have in this IPA. I mean, I can tell a physician all day long as a business person, you know, we need to do the right thing by patients, but they have to have the, the vision in the charisma to really galvanize their own physician peers to make that a reality. So this particular IPA, they've been in population health for a few years. They've had a, a modicum of success, but it's really that physician leadership. And it's just absolutely key in making sure that they can really engage in these meaningful conversations and, and really understand that you're going to have to take risks with this. I mean, if you're if you want to tap into that unharnessed reservoir of healing capacity with these physicians that really got into practicing medicine for the right thing, then you have to be able to convey a powerful narrative. You have to tell the stories, you have to hand out the checks to the doctors. You have to somehow deconstruct the model of the team. 
you know, how do you get physicians to really move out of the traditional kind of autocratic cowboy type practice model where you become more of a a quarterback, let's say, where you're you're handing off to other people on the care team, you're you're communicating better, you're dispersing leadership and allowing others to practice up to their highest level of scope and licensure. And I really think that it starts from the top. And I don't mean the top of me as an ACO executive, but it's the physician CEO that really has to have that degree of vision and charisma and the relational lead leadership necessary to revitalize these providers and, and, and that are previously feeling like they're marginalized by the system, that they, they actually have an opportunity to, to practice the way that they always envisioned. What the, do I want to call it the final straw? You were running around going business, business, business. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it it sounds like the the kind of the final catalyst wasn't business per se. It was physicians just getting completely fed up with not being empowered to do what they went to school to do. You're absolutely right. When I started working with physicians that are brand new to population health, you start looking at the data. And when the very first meeting you have with a doctor, they have this sense that I already do right by patients. I deliver good outcomes. And then you show them the data and you say, well, physician, such and such, what was your annual wellness visit completion rate? Are you getting patients in annually to get seen and make sure that you're managing their chronic disease appropriately? And, and physicians are like, oh, yeah, I'm close to 100 percent. And you're like, well, doctor, actually, you're about 30 percent. So there's a lot of patients that are falling through the cracks and they're not being engaged. And it is just earth shattering. I mean, to see that the physicians bubble pop and they're like, oh, wow, I've got some work to do. And, and I think that's the beauty of getting into population health. It's really having access to data that you previously didn't have. You know, again, you practicing in a fee for service world, you got your head down, you're you're doing all the transactional activity necessary to get reimbursed. And you know that procedural reimbursement is more valuable than cognitive services and really thinking holistically about the patient. And then when you start seeing the data, you see that that opportunity. Like what is actionable? I mean, what clinical interventions can I somehow enact to create an economic impact that's also beneficial for the patient? So what are the signals and the triggers, you know, for a patient being failed by me as a physician where they have a fall in the home and I somehow didn't know about that or they're on 15 medications, but they're not actively being reconciled and looked at. They have a psych morbidity or dangerous home situation. You really need that clinical data combined with the clinical intuition of the physician and that top-level physician leadership that's really speaking into that sense of altruism that the physicians inherently believe in to really move the needle on that. So it is a wonderful experience being part of that. But boy, I have to tell you, it's a lot of work and it takes years. It's years in the making. So along those lines, you've left us with a conundrum, Eric, because so I'm a physician and I'm like, wow, this value-based opportunity sounds fantastic. And I, you know, I can get back to actually doing what I love and practicing medicine and get rid of this burnout that's hovering over me like a black cloud. But yikes, it takes $2 million and a whole lot of time. And I have patients to see, like I, I can't sit in the back office and figure all this stuff out. So what's an IPA to do? 
there has to be some way that you can create enablement across that risk continuum that will allow you to build that infrastructure and tap into a reservoir of capital where you can have that IT infrastructure and the data management and all the delegated functions necessary to succeed. And I really think that you have to build the track record. It, I know it sounds like a kind of a catch-22, like, how do I do that? But I think there's, there's incremental things that you can already do within your own practice to be more patient-centered. You don't have to boil the ocean overnight. But with that success, you know, let's say you pursue uh, a patient-centered medical home uh, recognition, and, 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 or maybe that's too expensive. I just, you just can't do it all. Well, just have patient-reported outcomes. Engage your patients in, in, a, in a way where you're looking beyond just that E&M encounter, and you have an experience group and really start having those, those internal conversations and then, you know, if there's products available on the managed care side where you can start working towards getting into risk, you can align with, uh, you know, an IPA or an ACO in your community. But it, it is it is tough, Stacey. But ultimately, in the physician space, I really think you're going to have to pick a partner. So do you have the capability to invest your own capital, reinvest profit to build all this stuff? Probably not. So are you going to go affiliate with a hospital or health system? You could. You have to make sure it's the right decision, but invariably there there is going to be some loss of independence and control in the because the financial decisions are going to be made by the hospital. If you're recommending aligning with the hospital or health system, that's kind of selling out, right? Because we were just talking about how hospitals and health systems might not necessarily have the same ultimate end game in mind. You're absolutely correct. I mean, and I I know that can be a bold statement, but there are other options. Private equity and venture-backed opportunities are there, but you have to understand the exit strategy that's in play for some of those uh, investors. I'm in a unique position where I'm actually able to facilitate investment into these provider practices and these ACOs where we actually put them in the driver's seat to make decisions. And I know it sounds it, it sounds a, a little odd, you know, that that's not typically what you hear about when you have in, in the investment community. But I think understanding how key physician leadership is, you really have to have a unique approach in order to seek a partnership. So is this the opportunity then that, that we've been seeking here during this conversation? So if I'm an IPA and I really want to do this, is the knight in shining armor trying to grab some of the equity dollars that is no longer being invested in hospital systems that might now be available to ambulatory practices. So I grab an, you know, an equity partner. Is that the way forward? I think so. You have to find that knight in shining armor. And it's going to be different in, in every community. But there there are investment opportunities where there is a different approach where you can actually form a partnership with physician leaders and put them at the helm to really channel and scale that unique vision for their patients in their respective market. And that's what I believe in. And that's the vision to which we um, at InnoVista are you know, working with our provider networks. If you work with such an investment partner, is there, and I'm not sure if you do this at InnoVista, but if you do, I'd be interested to know how you support your average physician who's a doctor, not an MBA, to 
be able to do the things that they would like to do within their practice and at the same time actually get paid for it, do that magic trick? Well, it'll sound like it's a a win-win opportunity for a physician to be in the driver's seat for capital investment, but it's not for everyone. And if we're working with a provider network, we have to know that they can overcome the barriers. We've talked a lot about the physician leadership, but they, they have to have the ability to operationalize that vision. And sometimes that execution function isn't there. And they have to really have that light bulb turn on like we were discussing earlier that I want to take this financial risk. I think that if you look at early adoption and you start making these incremental wins and you have a physician leader, it doesn't have to be an MBA, but someone that really can have you know, powerful peer-to-peer conversations that are going to create a story and a narrative to which we have to navigate the headwinds of these future payment models and really speak to the physician's sense of why they even got into medicine in the first place. And I really think that you can be successful. And I think you just have to take the steps to start doing something and moving in that direction and understanding that physicians are going to have to step up and become leaders. And you see more and more of these physicians getting MBAs and somehow managing you know, the business side with the practice of medicine. And I just think that's going to be more and more of a trend as we create these disruptive innovations towards patient-centered care. And I think it was Dr. Robert Pearl that painted the pretty stark picture that physicians rarely get leadership training. There's like no leadership training in medical school. So there's a ton of hurdles to this. And the more that you talk, the more that it becomes, let's just say, rational that a lot of physicians sold out and these hospital-led IDNs are the powerhouses that they are. Because a lot of what we're talking about here might not be necessarily within the sweet spot skill set of, you know, a medical practitioner. It's definitely operations and it's business and it's finance and it's assessing risk and being risk tolerant. (laughs) Um, You know, there's a lot of studies that have actually, it was in the um, Daniel Kahneman book, comparing the average person against like a Wall Street person as far as risk tolerance goes. And and it was just like no comparison. So, you know, like you have this, just all of these forces, which conspire to make it really tough. And it is tough, Stacey. I mean, it, it feels like, you know, I, I'm part of something where I'm having to catalyze a social movement because you do have these primary care physicians that feel so devalued and marginalized and they don't have any agency to influence payment incentives. But if you take them along the path, and it's a long journey, again, I mean, it, it's, it's going to take years. But when you start having success, then you can get there. And I'm encouraged by that. It sounds like if I was going to wrap up all of your advice into one sentence, it's just start small, incremental, just try something, look around in the area, see if there's anybody that you can partner up with that seems to have the right intent. Don't be cowed or overwhelmed by the whole entire journey. What everybody's grandma says, you know, if you've got a tangle of yarn, just start unraveling it one knot at a time. (laughs) Um, Is that kind of the, would you agree? Or is there any color that you want to add there? I absolutely agree. But I also think you just have to somehow deconstruct the model of the team and know that you're going to have to 
be more of a leader at times than you are a clinician. You're going to have to pick the right partners and you're really going to have to tell good stories to move your peer physicians along the way towards uh, patient-centered value-based care. So talk a little bit about InnoVista and where people might be able to get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more. Sure. Well, InnoVista Health Solutions is a population health management services organization, again, helping providers navigate this chaotic landscape towards risk and value-based payment. You can find us online, innovista-health.com. And we would be happy to better understand, you know, the needs of your practice, your market, your ACO, and maybe have an opportunity to collaborate in a meaningful way. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Eric. Thank you, Stacey. It's been a pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.